0: Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. feel this need to be sensitive to a unable to see the forest through the trees scenario. Tonight we're going to pick up in chapter 25, we'll look at chapter 26 and chapter 27, but it's worth recognizing that this falls in the context of a bigger book, right? The story of the Exodus. And it's helpful for us to do a little bit of structural inventory before we get started tonight. And what I mean by that is a couple of things. First off, Starting with chapter 5, for basically the rest of the book, all the way through chapter 40, with two slight chapters interrupting, we're just going to talk about the tabernacle. Okay, That's all that's left in the book. Um, Not only that, but just proportionately with me, think about what that means for a second. Now remember, the chapters as written in your English Bible were not penned by the original author. They're added for reference, but generally they divide up the books of the Bible pretty well. And so we could say uh, that you could think of, a, of Exodus as having 40 total parts. If it's a pie, you cut it into 40 slices. And that, I, I think we should be comfortable with that understanding. With that in mind, If we start here at chapter 25, that means the last 15 chapters of Exodus, minus those two chapters, which really thematically matter, we'll come back to that, um, focus on the tabernacle. Now, the Exodus story, right, the ones with Pharaoh and the plagues, all the way beginning uh, with their need and the birth of Moses through to the Red Sea, that is only 14 chapters, Okay, and so it's equally balanced on both sides of the book, what God has done in bringing Israel out and this plan for the building of a tent. Okay, not only that, but the the Jewish rabbis used to point out, look, God explained the entire building of the earth in a single chapter in the book of Genesis, and he devotes 13 in the book of Exodus to the tabernacle. Okay, so it's worth recognizing the weight of that. But the second thing I want to deal with is, um, is the trajectory then. Okay? Exodus begins with a people in trouble, a people enslaved, a people who have promises because of their predecessor, Abraham, but the life that they're living is so distant from expectation. Right, The book of Exodus opens and there's a Pharaoh on the throne who does not remember Joseph who's enslaved the people, and the people are under the thumb of the Egyptians, that's where it begins, and God says, okay, now is the time I'm going to bring you out. And as he's bringing them out, he says, I'm not just bringing you out to set you free, but to make you my people. And so he brings them out, he teaches them through a couple of living illustrations, like manna from heaven, of what that's going to look like. He brings them to Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law and the covenant. But the pinnacle of this trajectory is the tabernacle, okay? If we ask the question, according to Exodus, what is God doing? We can't simply settle with God is bringing out a people. We can't even settle with God is bringing out a people to himself, We have to settle with God is bringing out a people to himself so that he might dwell with them, okay? And so the tabernacle here is the pinnacle of the story of the book of Exodus because that's God's desire. Now, that's not a new desire. This theme can't be pinned down just to the book of Exodus, as we'll see later. This is a major major arc through all of scripture, but it's echoed, it's reverberated, it's personified here. The last thing structurally I want to lay out is, as I mentioned, the rest of the book is about the tabernacle with an interruption right in the middle. And it's appropriately called a middle because um, on the first half of it, we get the instructions for the tabernacle. On the second half, we get the building of the tabernacle. And if you come back and listen to us read through it again, it's going to sound tremendously redundant because it is. In one half, it's this is how you should build it. And in the other half is so this is how they built it and it's just as detail-oriented. But there's an interruption in the middle, and here's what it is. It's the episode where while Moses is on the mountain receiving the instructions for the tabernacle, the Israelites get worried. They go, well, we don't know what happened to that Moses guy, so Aaron, make for us a god that we can worship. And he gathers all their jewelry. He makes for them a golden calf. And by the time Moses comes down, with the Ten Commandments and the instructions for the tabernacle in hand, everything's gone to hell, okay? After that is dealt with, then the second half of the story is told, and it's right back to the tabernacle. Does that sound like it's structurally significant, right? We have two halves, and we have something in the middle, okay? It's intentionally put together this way, okay? It's not just chronological, it's also thematically emphatic, and so I want you to picture it from these two venues then, these two perspectives. On the one hand, God is trying to answer the question, here's what it's going to look like to worship a God like me. In the meantime, mankind's heart, as reflected in Israel, is going, let's just figure out how to worship God according to our own ways, okay? And these two are laid out in the book as diametrically opposed. One of the repeated phrases we're going to see as we study the tabernacle is, according to the pattern. Do it just as I have told you. Right? There's an emphasis here on the intricacy and the importance of details and the fact that this is exactly how God wants it. Okay, so those are the big structural things I wanted to lay on the table. Lord willing, what we're going to look at tonight is the description of the tabernacle and its furniture itself. Next week, we'll get into the priesthood, um, their clothing, etc. But let's pick up in chapter 25, verse 1 the Lord said to Moses. Now, I want you to note that phrase because we're going to see it. Over the course of the rest of the book, it occurs seven times, and we'll see later that that's significant. But the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for settings, for the ephod and the breastplate breastpiece and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so shall you make it. And so it begins here with a free will offering. And I think that's significant, okay? God says, I want you to build me a tabernacle, but we're going to build that on the back of free will donations, as is in your heart to give. Anyone whose heart is moved to give, right? And so it's intriguing, isn't it? On one half, God says this has to be according to the pattern, which let's just recognize involves numbers, right? They're going to need a certain amount of gold. They're going to need a certain amount of wood. They're going to need a certain amount of linen. But when it comes to the opening, he doesn't set a tax on his people. He doesn't assign it out equally. He wants them to participate in this freely, is a, a free will offering. They're giving here, even though God has a plan for it, and a rather th- relatively specific one, is to be freely, joyfully. The reason why I point that out is because it seems significant because it's unnecessary. Let's just recognize God has spent chapters saying, this is how you will live because you are my people. It'd be relatively easy for him to add to that, oh, by the way, there's a startup cost right? It may seem weird to us, but it wouldn't be inappropriate. In fact, he's going to lay out a tithe uh, and other offerings that are supposed to be routine and regular, but for the building of the tabernacle, the offering is to be free will, okay? They're given a chance to reflect their desire for God to dwell with them, okay? Now, it's interesting, when you look at the New Testament, the tithe this regularly required amount of money that the word tenth, uh, tithe means tenth, that all Jews gave for the sustaining of the priesthood, for the worship of God, and also for the taking care of the poor, it kind of falls by the wayside. It's not really mentioned. We see lots of giving and generosity in the New Testament, but we don't see any place where a tithe is required. Now, in Jesus's ministry, speaking to the religious leaders, he criticizes them because they tithe even from their mint and from their cumin, the smallest things they grow in their garden, but they neglect the greater things like mercy and justice. Notice that Jesus doesn't criticize them for giving from the small things, just from only giving from the small things and ignoring things that are way more important, okay? So I'm not saying here that a tithe isn't biblical, but the emphasis changes in the New Testament. And that's why when Paul is talking to the church in Corinth as they gather up an offering for another church, the church in Jerusalem that's going through hard times, he says that the giving should not be of compulsion. And he says, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so the emphasis in the New Testament is on this same thing. Give as you desire to. Give freely from a cheerful heart. The Greek word there is hilarion, Um, It's evolved into the English word hilarious, and it doesn't mean that God loves a laughing giver, but you can see the connection between the two. The, The reality of giving should be something that you desire to do, okay? Let me put it simply. God doesn't want your money. As it says in the Psalms, he's the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills. The whole earth is the Lord's, right? And so if he asks us to give it's not because he needs, but because we do. He's not trying to merely build a tabernacle. He's also trying to shape a people. And part of the way that he shapes them is by inviting them to participate in what he's doing. The New Testament says the same thing. In fact, let me broaden it out tonight. God doesn't need you this whole plan he has to save the human race, the work that he's doing on earth. When Jesus prays, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's God's agenda, that's God's plan. He doesn't need you for it, but he does invite you into it. Why? Because he wants to do something in you, not merely through you, okay? And so he gives them the opportunity to give here freely, to participate freely freely. And he makes a list of all of the ingredients that go into making a tabernacle here, um, (coughs) tells them what they can bring. And then on the other hand, as I mentioned, all of this is free will. And then look at verse 8, and then let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you make it. This is another repeated refrain we'll see over and over again in the weeks to come. They are to build this according to the pattern which I have shown you, Moses, okay? Now, we'll notice that the instructions that are given here are detailed, but they're not that detailed. And so sometimes we'll have height, but not width. Sometimes we'll have a reference of how something is laid out, but the details won't be given. We know, for example, that the lamp, uh, the, the lamp that's in the holy place is 75 pounds worth of gold. And it gives general ideas of how it's shaped and where the stems are, but there's a lot of stuff that we would read this and say is open to interpretation. But when we read this line, we go above and beyond that and we go, okay, according to the pattern which I have shown you, and this word for pattern is a sticky one, okay, because because it can mean a couple of different things. It could be according to the model which I have shown you or according to the plan which I have given you. And so it's hard to tell here if God is saying to Moses the blueprints, which I've shown you, right? There's some sort of visualization. Or if he's pointing to the fact that there's a heavenly reality that the tabernacle reflects. Okay? This word for pattern can mean that as well. It can mean a picture, and the picture is actually the other way around. So it's not the real tabernacle on earth representing the plans as if God has a... Um, you know, a city hall in heaven where these plans are kept on display, but instead that the tabernacle is personifying something more than the tabernacle, that it's built to reflect something in particular. And I would argue that's the case. We'll see that more as it goes on tonight. So he says, take up this offering. And then he begins to describe the things that will be built. And I want you to notice where he begins. If you're familiar with the tabernacle, it's got a bunch of different pieces of furniture. It comes with a priesthood. Um, It's it's a relatively large tent, and the tent has many parts. But where does he start? He starts with the ark, verse 10. They shall make (coughs) an ark of acacia wood, two cubits, and half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Now, a cubit is probably not a measurement you're familiar with, Traditionally, we believe that it was the length from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger, okay, which you can understand why that would be convenient, but also it's not going to be as rigid and as standardized as a ruler, right? Some of your arms may be longer or shorter than mine, but it gives you a way to very quickly, remember this is a people who are just passing through the wilderness uh, to measure these things, and it was a relatively standard way of measuring across this area in the world, and so when we put it into our measurements, think about a foot and a half, 18 inches, that's about right, okay, and so what we see here is that the arc is supposed to be a box um, that says it's um, two cubits and a half in length, okay, so that's uh, 36 plus a half cubit is another nine, so about 40 inches long, Uh, and then about half of that in height and depth, okay. Just just a small box. And that, by the way, is what ark means here. The word is a Hebrew word that just means box. So they're supposed to build this box. And then verse 11, they shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. Okay, so they cover the wood entirely in gold. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. Okay, a decora- decorative molding. Verse 12, you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side. Okay, I mentioned to you that not all the details are given, this is a perfect example. We know the measurements of the box, we don't know how long the legs are or how wide the legs are. We just find out that there's legs and that's where the rings go. Okay, it's not mentioned here although there's tremendous details, these ones aren't given, but what we see here is that it's a box It's hollow, like a box is, overlaid inside and outside with gold. It stands whatever height on legs, and then attached to each leg is a ring of gold. Continuing here, it says, verse 13, You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. Okay, and so the ark has um, poles that slide through these rings, one on each side, and it's to be carried by the poles. Instead of God designing it with handles so that it could be easily picked up, they have rings, and the only thing they touch is not the ark itself, but the poles, okay? Now, in this text, the significance of that is not stated, but there's a story later in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5, when... Um, when a guy named Uzzah is uh, helping David move the ark from where it's been in Shiloh to Jerusalem. And it's in the middle of a big parade. Everybody's watching, and the ox that are moving the ark, they hit a little pothole in the road, and the ark topples a little bit, and Uzzah reaches out, and he touches it, and he dies instantly. As a side note, David is not pleased by this. He's relatively upset, because he wants to do something great, and now he's got death on his hands, right? Right? But here's the thing, when we look at that, you have to recognize the significance of the ark, so let's talk about it. This is going to be the centerpiece of the tabernacle, it's at its very heart. Um, The tabernacle lays out about half the size of a football field, and then in that space is a smaller space called the the holy place, and then in the back room of the holy place is the holy of holies. The tabernacle is all the way back there, Uh, uh, sorry, the, um, the ark is all the way back there, in that room. On top of that, the courtyard, everyone can access, the holy place, only the priests, and the holy of holies, just the high priest, just with blood, and just once a year on the day of atonement. When the ark is uh, transferred, because remember this is a tent, it's going to move along with Israel, they actually wrap it entirely and cover it up in the veil that divides the holy place from the holy of holies. So if you're an average Israelite, you're never going to see this thing. but here's here's the thing we're going to see in a second that this is the place God chooses to dwell broadly in the tabernacle specifically in relationship to the ark okay and so this is um, this is going to be the personification of the throne of God so what does Uzzah do wrong in balancing the ark he thinks that the ark touching the earth is is worse than him touching the ark. That's the problem. Okay. The whole design of the tabernacle is built literally to keep the Jews alive. Okay. That's why Leviticus goes through and says, this is what clean is, this is what unclean is, this is what holy is, this is what unholy is. Right? And there's a recognition of danger involved in this. As we read in the next few chapters, we'll see all of these things where it's like, oh yeah, don't do this lest you die. Okay. You may remember we saw back in Genesis that the, uh, the average encounter with God includes shock and awe that the people are still standing. Right? And so Jacob just goes, man, I wrestled with God and I'm still alive. We'll see the same thing in the book of Judges. Samson's parents have the same kind of encounter they're blown away by this fact even when God reveals himself to Moses God says first thing you should understand is this is not going to work you will not survive so I'm going to have you stand in this little cleft in this rock I'm going to have you there and then I'm going to cover so you can't see anything and I'm going to pass by and then it says that all he'll see is my and the translation is difficult backside afterglow essence uh, you know post-radiation. I mean, really, we don't know what it means, but it clearly means not actually seeing God. What did we learn just a chapter ago when the uh, Jewish leaders came up the mountain and ate a meal with God? It says, and they saw his throne, right? And that's it. The rest isn't described. Isaiah sees the same thing. He sees a throne room, He sees a throne, he sees worship going on, he sees a train of his robe, but God is not described, okay? In fact, think of the Ark itself, okay? Now, I know I'm gonna mix metaphors here and it might screw you up, but I want you to think of Indiana Jones and I don't mean Raiders of the Lost Ark, okay? I want you to think of that original scene, okay? Uh, Sorry, I mean, uh, hold on, I'm sorting through here. I do mean Raiders of the Lost Ark, but before the Ark, remember that scene and there's the little golden idol there and it's on a pedestal and it's right at the heart of the temple imagine indiana jones not knowing about the jews came into the tabernacle came into the temple later in the jews and he gets to the center and he sees this box and as we'll see this box has two cherubim that are beat out of gold on it, and both of them are facing one another with their wings raised high, and they're looking at the box, okay? And so their eyes, these statue cherubim, one facing this way and the other opposite of it, are looking at the surface of the box. What does Indiana Jones think? I'm too late. Their idol's already been stolen, right? The emphasis on this design is, is, it goes directly with the beginning of the Ten Commandments, Okay, and so even the tabernacle reflects this unseeable, unknowable, not reducible down to an image design. Tradition says that when Titus leveled Rome in 70 AD and burned the temple to the ground, he was blown away as he marched in past the priests into the temple itself and found no God. Okay, and so that's all by design. But also reflected in the tabernacle is the tremendous holiness of God and the tremendous sinfulness of us and the incompatibility of those two things and so this ark had poles so that it could be carried transported safely okay it also says in verse 16 you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you remember God said that he's going to write down his 10 words on two stones and they're supposed to be placed in here now, if we understand our ancient archaeology correctly, if, the, uh, if the, what's being imaged here is a suzerain vassal treaty. Now, I know this is super scholastic. Don't worry about it too much. But a lot of people, when they read Exodus, Numbers, De- Deuteronomy, they see a tremendous parallel between the covenant God makes with Israel and the covenant uh, that we know as a suzerain vassal treaty, a covenant between a king and his vassals. Um, The format's the same, the way it goes about, the blessings and the curses at the end of Deuteronomy, it all lines up in the same order, okay? If that's proper, then it's intriguing that when that covenant was signed, two copies would be signed, one would go with the vassal and the other would stay with the king. Here we have two and they both go in the ark, okay? But either way, we'll see there's a little bit more contents in this box, but... Ten Commandments on these two stones is put there. And then verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat. Now, the word there for mercy seat is a difficult one. Uh, we're grasping at straws, trying to convey both the theological idea here and the practical idea. So mercy plus seat, okay? It comes from the word kopher, which just means to cover. And you would think that that just means you should make a lid, but the word group it comes from is the same word group where we get our word atonement, okay? And so the atonement seed is closer, but as we find later, for example, if you look at 1 Samuel 4.4 4 or Psalm 99 verse 1, the picture here is not of the place where God sits, but the base of his throne. In the same way in the vision in chapter 24, the elders see this, this um, foundation for the throne, that's more... What the seed is. But it's not merely just the you know the foundation of his throne, it's also this place of atonement. It's also this place of mercy. Okay? There's a recognition here that um that what takes place at that, on this lid, is at the heart of everything, the heart of Israel's worship as a whole. We're not going to learn this for quite a while, but on the day of atonement, blood would be brought in and it would be sprinkled on this lid. Okay, now here's why I'm hitting this so hard. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul, speaking of Jesus, refers to him as, and most translations would say, our propitiation. And that's a possible translation there, but the word is a unique one. It's only used twice in the New Testament. The other one is in the book of Hebrews, and it's used in the context of the tabernacle, and it's translated as mercy seat. Okay. And so what I'm telling you is that Paul seems to see the significance of Jesus' death as corresponding to the heart of Israel's worship right here. Okay, Now there's a whole lot more detail that we have to unpack to get there, and we're not going to do it tonight, but I just wanted to drop it in your brain. So verse 17 again, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth. You shall make two cherubim of gold, hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another towards the mercy seat shall their faces of the cherubim be. And so to s- describe this again, we have a flat lid that sits on top of the box. On each end is an angel, a cherub, with its wings raised above its head, over covering the rest, um, the rest of the ark. And then they are facing one another and they are looking at the space between. Okay. I read one commentary that I thought put this really well if this is a personification of God's throne room, the God who you cannot make an idol to represent, they do make a picture of the thing closest to God. And when you read later visions of God's throne room in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in the book of Revelation, what do you find? You find God's throne surrounded by angels, cherubim and seraphim in particular, okay? And so here's this representative reality, um, but it's just representative um and so it describes this and then verse 21 you should put the mercy seat on top of the ark in the ark you should put the testimony that I shall give you there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are on the ark of testimony I will speak with uh, with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel okay so this is going to be the primary place of God's communication with Israel through Moses This can be sometimes hard to spot as we keep reading because sometimes this place is referred to as the tabernacle and other times it's referred to as the place of meeting, the tent of meeting, okay? Specifically, the tent of meeting with God. When you read that Moses went into the tent of meeting, this is what we're talking about, the Ark and the Holy of Holies and communication at that level, okay? But this is the place where Israel will meet with God, where God will meet with Israel. Now we get another piece of furniture in verse 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. You shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners on all of its four legs. And so what we see here is basically just a table. It's got decorative molding, just like we saw with the Ark, and then it also says here that it has a rim, and we don't know if that's a rim downward that's decorative or a rim upward to hold things on it. I'm partial to the second one, and that has to do with the purpose for the table. Verse 27, close to the frame, the ring shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. Just like the ark, it has built in poles so that it can be transported. Verse 29, you shall make for it plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me. Regularly. So what was this table for? This table was to exist in the tabernacle, and we'll learn later that this is where the bread of the presence would be placed. Okay, the bread of the presence is 12 loaves of bread, sprinkled with frankincense, changed out every week. And when it's changed out, last week's bread would be eaten by the priests. Okay? When we ask, what is the purpose of this? We find an answer in the name itself. It's not just the bread, it's the bread of the presence, In the same way that uh, in chapter 24, the elders of Israel come and they have this meal, right? This fellowship offering with the Lord. The bread of the presence is like a continuing manifestation of that, okay? It's, It's an ongoing fellowship feast. It's a representation of the fact that they aren't just in close quarters with God, but in relationship with God, okay? Verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Okay, so we have a single piece of gold. We'll see in a second that it's um, about 75 pounds worth of gold. No wood involved in this, no overlay going on, and it's to be hammered out. And then it says that in verse 32, there shall be six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other. Okay? So in other words, it has seven lamps. One is the main uh, trunk of the lamp, and then coming off on each side are three branches on one and three branches of the other. If you're familiar with Jewish holidays or households, you should be thinking of a menorah. Okay? That's the design here. It says, continuing on here, um, that each of those three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx flower in one branch, and three cups made with almond blossoms, each with calyx flower, and on the other branch, so for the six branches going out of the lampstand. So each one is decorated with these almond blossoms and fruit. Okay, Verse 34, and on the lampstand itself shall be uh, four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Now, we're getting into a lot of detail here so let me give you a hand. Familiarize yourself if you're interested with the tabernacle, the temple, and its furniture with the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. Okay, Currently, the Jews don't have a temple. The Temple Mount Uh, Temple Mount, they share with the Muslims, that's where the Dome of the Rock is built, and Jews are not allowed to build up there, they'd like to, and they have been preparing to build a new temple, they have a lot of the furniture built, Um, if you go to Jerusalem, you can see this golden lampstand, it's much bigger than this one, as a side note, but it's solid gold, and very impressive, they leave it out in public, because it's too heavy to run away with, okay, it's, 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 in glass, but it'd be hard to steal, and stealing in Jerusalem is a bad idea anyways. Um, But they have all of this prepared. They have plans for a modern temple. When I was there a few years ago, they explained to me that when they rebuild the temple, because they're set on it, it will have heated floors, okay? Because the priests have to minister barefoot, and it'll have parking, Okay, they have a plan for a modern temple, but it's based on these original things. And so if you go to the Temple Institute's website, you can find a lot of their um, designs for these things. Some of them, like I said, they've already completed. If you go to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, you can actually visit their museum and see model versions of most of the um, furniture for the tabernacle and the temple. It's pretty fascinating. Um, verse 36. The calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of a single piece of hammered work, pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light to the space in front of it. Now most commentators mean that the lamps are oriented then or or that the calyxes and blossoms are oriented to reflect light not just up or out but in a particular direction. Okay, We'll find that this is placed in the holy place on a particular side uh, of the, the tent, and so it's shining light into. it. It's the only light in the room. It's this large candelabra, if you will, um, except without candles, no wax. It's oil lamps. Okay. Um, <coughs> verse thirty-eight: Its tongs and their trays shall be made of pure gold, and it shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. Okay, a talent is about seventy-five pounds of gold. Okay, it's a substantial thing. Now when we add up all of the gold and silver and bronze that goes into the tabernacle, it's a substantial amount, okay? Thousands of pounds. And it's easy to look at that and go, wait, how did Israel have all this? How did a bunch of slaves have this? Two things, okay? One, as we already saw, God gave them favor with the Egyptians and they gave their jewelry and things from and they left with these things, okay? Part of that goes to build the tabernacle. Second... Um, when you take the general size that we believe Israel was and you divide all of these precious metals, we're talking about uh, 0.25 of an ounce per person, okay? It's a very large crowd of people to make these donations. And so, in other words, the gold bracelets add up, okay? Um, But once again, notice the reiteration in verse 40, and see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown to you on the mountain, okay? Now, later, we're going to see that God fills with his spirit two artists, two master architects to pull off this whole thing, and he brings in a lot of skilled workers, but even those two are said to be filled with the spirit, okay? And so this is something that God is building through Israel, but once again, we see reiterated according to the plan. Chapter 26, verse 1, moreover, you shall make the tabernacle, okay? And so what have we seen so far? We've seen the ark, a table, a golden lampstand. Okay, now it moves to the structure itself. And don't think temple with physical walls, think tent. That's what tabernacle means, okay? Remember, this is portable. It's all designed to be taken apart and put back together over and over again. And so (coughs) before we read it, let me just give you the layout of the whole thing and then we'll read it through. This is a tent that's outer court, okay? The outside walls of the tent, no ceiling on this part are about 150 feet by 75 feet, okay? So the outer walls, which are just hung curtains, basically, on rods, uh, like if you've ever worked with pipe and drape, that's a perfect example of what we're talking about, okay? Hung curtains that go 75 feet in the front and in the back, that would be on the east and the west side, and then running north and south 150 feet long, okay? In the middle of that, we have a single structure. This one has a lid, but all made out of curtains, again, as we'll see, Um, and it's made of two parts. The front room of it is 30 feet by 15 feet, and the back room is 15 feet by 15 feet, okay? And that whole thing is covered, and then the most holy place, that 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet cube room, um, we'll see is, uh, there's more than just the covering that goes on. It's more intense as we get to the center. Now let's look at what it says here. So you'll make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine twined linen, blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Now when it says fine twined linen, um, fine linen today, we're talking about a an 80 thread per inch count, okay? The Egyptians had a technology to do almost double that, okay? And so this is really high quality linen. Um, And so, they're to make them, and they're to be blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and you shall make them with cherubim, skillfully worked into them. And so, there's to be these these angels embroidered into the design of these curtains that it's talking about here. Verse 2, the length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits, and the curtain shall be the same size. Now, if you want to go home and build a diorama to scale, you could do so. It's pretty detailed. We're not going to worry about each and every part. I'm just going to highlight the biggest things. Verse 3, five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. Okay, this is the first place <coughs> where we get something important. We need to recognize here that all of the curtains in the tabernacle are not just a single layer. Okay, kind of like in your house, how you may have, um, you know, that kind of see-through curtain, and then you have a thicker curtain, one that lets the light through but gives you privacy, and the other, which is keeps the light out. The tabernacle is designed in the same way, with layers of different material. Okay. Um, so verse 4, you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outmost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outmost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that's in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another even the number of loops per curtain is not left up to guessing, right? If you've ever done any structural work in your house, you know that your beams have to be no more, if I remember right, than a foot and a half apart. Is that right? Is it two feet apart? Foot and a half, right? There's standards for building this thing, and God makes clear, 50 loops, not 51, not 49. 50 loops, okay? Very detailed, Verse six, you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains to one another with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. So all these layered curtains are pinned together with gold clasps so that all the layers are hanging together, but they can't be taken apart, okay? Verse seven, you shall also make the curtains of goat's hair for the tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits. The breadth of each curtain, four cubits. The 11 curtains shall be the same size. You'll couple the five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain, you shall double over the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that's outmost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that's outmost in the other. In other words... For this holy place and holy of holies combo, there are these beautiful curtains on the inside and then there's basic curtains and then on the outside of that is goat's hair, which when it's processed, think felt, and then leather. And then as we'll see in a second, uh, what may have been something between badger skin or porpoise skin, uh, uh, something that's incredibly waterproof, okay? And so inside is the most valuable and the most detailed and the most easy to destroy, the most fragile. Outside is the most unattractive, but also the most weatherproof, okay? Makes sense, doesn't it? Verse 11, you shall make 50 clasps of bronze. Now, pause. Where, what, color, or what type of metal were the last clasps we saw? They were gold. These ones are bronze. We'll come back to that. And put clasps into the lutes and couple the tent together that it may be a single hole and the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle, on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ramskins and a covering of goat skins on top. Okay, so here's the curtains. We see, like I said, inside, precious curtains. Outside, more weatherproof. It's going to drape over the top and hang down the sides so that it's completely covered. In other words, the holy place from the outside just looks like any other weatherproof tent. On the inside is a different story. Now it starts to tell us about the structure that the the curtains are going to hang on. And so what does it say here in verse 15? You shall make upright frames. For the tabernacle of acacia wood, ten cubits shall be the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. If I understand this right, you should think of a ladder. Okay? And so the idea here is two sideboards with crossboards running through it. Okay? That's the structure that these curtains are going to hang over. Verse 18, you shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames to the south, 40 bases of silver. You shall make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons, okay? And so we see that all of this is going to sit in little silver pedestals, okay? Silver is a good metal to use because it's nice and heavy. And so the tent is going to sit upright. The uh, The poles for the tent are going to sit in these little foundations, uh, verse 20, for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, 20 frames, and on their 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle, west, for, west, you should make six frames. You should make two frames for the corners of the tabernacle and the rear, and they shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top, at the first ring. Thus shall be with both of them, they shall form two corners, and there shall be eight frames with their bases, silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame, and two bases under another frame. Now, I think from that verse, you get a good feeling on why this is written this way, okay? Because this passage is going to be referred to constantly. When I worked for a church um, up north, we always did a sunrise service for Easter. And as you may know, in Seattle, you're not guaranteed the weather you're going to get. And so we had this tent. It was our sunrise service Easter tent. It didn't have sides, but it had a nice high top, and it had a ton of pieces, but we only put it together once a year, and so inevitably, every year, I'd be out there at 4.30 a.m., right, because it's a sunrise service, in the dark, trying to remember how all of these pieces fit together again, and every year, I'd promise myself that I was going to write down directions so it'd be easier next year, and I never had them. I think when you look at verse 25 here and you basically get a reminder inventory, it's a recognition here that Israel is going to familiarize themselves with this text, and as they take it apart and put it together, mentally they're going through the checklist, okay? Part of the reason why this is so detailed is not only so they can build it right, but so that they can continue to put it together and take it apart right, okay? Verse 26, you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, five bars for the frames of the tabernacle at the rear westward. These are crossbars, okay, in the structure. The middle bar halfway up the frame shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold, and you shall make the rings of gold for holders of the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked in it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with the hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. So what is this? This is the front door to the Holy of Holies. And we'll see just like the inside of the Holy of Holies, it's tremendously detailed. Now, we know from later Jewish uh, record that this veil that was in the temple that Herod built, the one that Jesus was in, the one that it mentions being torn in in two, was about four inches thick in fabric, Okay, just to give you a feel for what this would look like. So this is a heavy curtain. It's not the type of barrier that's going to blow open in the wind. You can get past it but you have to want to get past it. On the outside, it looks normal, just like the holy place. On the inside, it's beautiful, inscribed with cherubim, just like the holy of holies. Um, And so it says in verse 33, you'll hang the veil from clasps and bring the ark of the testimony within the veil, and the veil shall separate you from the holy place, from the most holy. What's the point of the veil? Separation. Do you see that? So that nobody accidentally goes beyond this line. Um, verse 34 you should put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place and you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposed to the table and you should put the table to the north side so only piece of furniture in the most holy place is the ark then when you come into the holy place there is the lampstand and the table of the presence and we'll see later uh the altar of incense those are the only three things in the holy place. It tells us what side of the tent things are put on here because the tent is always organized. So it's front door, the entrance to the holy place, and the holy of holies are all pointing east. Okay? And so it says here that one of these pieces of furniture is on the north and on the south. In other words, each side as you walk into the holy place, you have the table on one side, the lamp on the other, and then the ark in the holy of holies ahead of you. Uh, Verse 36, you shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. So this is the curtain into the holy place, from the courtyard outside into the holy place where the lamp is. Notice that it's also beautiful, but what's missing? Cherubim, okay? And so we're starting to get some pieces here that I think are important, so let me just point them out. The Holy of Holies has... Everything and more when it comes to the highest quality materials. It also is embroidered with cherubim. The holy place has all of those materials, but no cherubim. The courtyard just has the most basic of linen, no color, and all of it is wrapped in this outer uh, material, you know, to keep, it, to keep it protected. In the same way, all the furniture in the holy place, and the holy of holies, is made of what? Gold. We'll see furniture in the courtyard. It will be made of bronze. And even when you look at the clasps and the foundations that the tabernacle is built on, the further out you get from the Holy of Holies, the less precious the metal. Okay? In fact, there is no bronze in the Holy of Holies and there's no gold in the courtyard. Okay? Let's keep going. Uh, verse 37, you shall make for it f- uh, for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. That's a perfect illustration. The Holy of Holies, uh, that veil is on bases of silver for the holy place entering into the courtyard, just bronze. Chapter 27, okay. Now we get to the furniture outside in the courtyard. The first thing we get is an altar. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. Okay, so we have a wood altar that's been completely encased in bronze. Now, what is an altar? Think barbecue because that's what it is, okay? It says here, uh, we'll see that it has a grating so that the ash can fall down below in just a second. It also says that it has horns here, one at each corner, four in total. The horns, as you can imagine them, are just rounded off corners that point up and either out or in or straight up. We don't actually know. They're called horns and the word there for horns is the same one used for like the horn of a ram or anything else. That gives us a little bit of a feeling for what these things are for, okay? Okay. If we're going to be super practical, it may just be to tie the animal to the altar. You've got four tie points, okay? But it's also the horns of the altar uh, where the blood would be placed during the sacrifices and if somebody was fleeing for protection because they'd accidentally killed someone and they threw themselves at the horns of the altar, that had to do with them receiving sanctuary, okay? Okay. When we look at how horns are used metaphorically in the scripture, like when it talks about the horn of the Lord, it always refers to God's power, okay? So it may be a representation of God's sovereignty, but it's not really told here. Like many things in the tabernacle, the design is according to the pattern, the meaning is not explained. But for the picture of it, think of a bronze box with four pokey corners, Um, verse three you shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans you shall also make all of its utensils in bronze you shall also make for it a grating barbecue a network of bronze and the net you shall make for bronze four bronze wings that rings at its four corners and you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that it extends halfway down the altar and you'll make poles for the altar poles of acacia wood and overlay them with bronze and the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on two sides of the altar when it's carried you shall make it hollow with boards as it's been shown to you on the mountain so shall it be made now the courtyard has a few other pieces of furniture that will come later but let me just uh point them out specifically there's just one and that's called a labor it's basically a place for the priests to wash up before they get started Okay. So now that we're familiar with all the furniture, let me walk you through the tabernacle. As you come through the east and go through into the courtyard, there's two pieces of furniture there. You have a place to wash made of bronze, the bronze laver, and you have the altar made of bronze with the four horns. Okay? As you continue walking in the same direction west, you come to the holy place and you pull back the veil and you look inside and you have the lamp on one side. You have the table of the presence on the other, and you also have in there the altar of incense, which we'll get to later. Then you have the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies, and if you open that up, all that's seated in there is the ark, okay? Getting a feel for how this is laid out? Um, Verse 9, so this is for the outer court. This is the outer wall, which is also made of fabric that makes up the courtyard, you shall make the court of the tabernacle on the south side of the court shall hang uh, um, have hangings of fine twine linen in a hundred cubits long for one side it's 20 pillars and the 20 bases shall be of bronze and the hooks of the pillar and their fillets shall be of silver and likewise for its length on the north side there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long it's pillars 20 and their bases 20 of bronze but the hooks and the pillars or their fillets shall be silver And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there should be hangings 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front of the east should be 50 cubits. The hangings for one side of the gate should be 15 cubits and on three pillars and on three bases. Okay, so I've already explained that this is about 150 feet by 75 feet. That's what it's describing there. It also tells us that the front door to the entire thing is pretty broad. 30 feet of that that 75 feet opens up. Two curtains, one 15 feet, one the other. So in the day, it's just open most of the way, okay? Uh, verse 16, for the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars with them four bases and all the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. The hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, 150 feet. The breadth, 50, 75 feet. And the height, five cubits, uh, seven and a half feet. With the hanging of fine twine linen and the bases of bronze, all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, all its pegs and the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Okay, so everything in the courtyard is bronze. Everything in the holy place is gold or in the holy of holies is gold. Now, we have one last thing referenced here that we'll pick up on before it turns to the priests, and that's the oil for the lamp, okay? It says in verse 20, you should command the people of Israel that they bring to you a pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may be regularly set upon to burn, okay? Why pure beaten olive oil? Because uh, if it's pure, then it won't smoke. So it's light without all of the impurities burning off. Um, second, it says here in verse 21, in the tent of meeting outside the veil that's before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout all the generations by the people of Israel. So what does it say here? It says that the lamp is to be kept burning all day and all night perpetually. Okay. So that's our introduction to the tabernacle. If we were to continue on, it'd start to explain how the priests are going to be dressed Okay, but we'll stop there for the night. I want to just remind you of a couple of things we've seen. One is, God clearly cares about the details, yes? Right, according to the plan, every detail is laid out. Second, it's got this progression as you move towards the center, okay? And so on the outside the least valuable materials, and as you progress in, it gets more valuable, it gets more intricate, it gets more beautiful. When you look at how the tabernacle was used, you see the same thing, okay? And so in the courtyard, all of the Jews could come. When there's the temple later, there's also a division between the men and the women, so there's the court of the women and the Gentiles. Only the Jewish men can come in where the sacrifices are done, but here, there's just a courtyard All Jews are allowed there, then there's the holy place, must be a priest, and then the holy of holies, only the high priest, okay? It's the same pattern we saw on Mount Sinai itself. You had all of Israel at the base, halfway up the mountain you had the elders of Israel, and the only one who goes all the way to the top is Moses. So we see that same progression, okay? Now here's another thing that I didn't point out as we went along, but it is incredible how much this tabernacle reminds us of the creation narrative, okay? In a couple of different ways. I'll just list them one by one. First off, interestingly enough, that emphasis and uh, the Lord spoke to Moses that started this off occurs seven times. And guess what follows the seventh time? You shall keep the Sabbath holy, okay? So six statements and the seventh is a Sabbath, just like six days of creation and the seventh is a Sabbath. In the, holy, uh, in the holy place, we have this lamp that gives light, and it's d- designed, specifically it says, with branches. Symbolically, what does it look like? It looks like a tree. In fact, most people believe, and you can trace this imagery, not just through the tabernacle and the temple, but all the way into the book of Revelation, being a picture of the tree of life, right? This, it has this presentation there. We have the cherubim. The only other place they've been mentioned so far in the Bible is guarding the entrance to Eden. And guess what? Where's the entrance to Eden? In the east. Okay? And so there seems to be a correlation here between these two things. In fact, just as a side note, as we get later into the language that it uses to talk about the building of the tabernacle, it's going to use phrases that are almost exactly like the ones for God. Okay, except this time it's Moses. Okay. Uh, and then, by the way, when it's built, it's, it's assembled in seven days. It, it, there's a bunch of pieces that go into this, but it seems to be um, intentionally drawing our minds back to the book of Genesis. Okay. Now, what do we do with this? There's a couple of options. As I mentioned, the Jews saw this as being significant just by how much time is devoted to it. You've seen this whole description, and we're going to get it again as it's built. Build it according to the pattern, so they built it, all the details according to the pattern. Okay? So there's an emphasis here, and they said, look, if, if God only gave us one day on the creation of the world, but, or one chapter on the creation of the world, but 13 on the creation of the tabernacle, it must be significant. And so going all the way back to the Jews, and it continued into Christian interpretation, the, the idea was maybe each and every facet of the tabernacle is symbolic. If you're interested in looking at what this looks like, I'd, it, uh, I'd encourage you to pick up Slemings according to the pattern, where he walks through and he says that silver is always a picture of redemption, that when fabric is blue, it reminds us of the heavens, so it speaks of God's sovereignty, and he'll walk through every piece and show its significance, Now, I have a problem with that, but I should say there is one thing that it has going for it. We've talked already in the Bible in our little study here about typology. This recognition that the New Testament says, hey, some of the things that God did historically, some of the people in the Old Testament, some of the events that happened, they were really living pictures of what was to come. That's typology. And so there's a shadow and a substance. There's a pattern and the fulfillment there's a type and an archetype and the New Testament talks about that a lot clearly the tabernacle in the temple has New Testament significance in terms of fulfillment in fact as we'll look at in just a minute when John opens up his introduction to his gospel he says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us he intentionally connects the dots for us and says what's going on with Jesus it's related to these things Jesus, in his own ministry, stands up and he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, right? Making a correlation between these things. Not only that, but you may remember that when I talked about being, uh, when I talked about studying typology and avoiding allegory, allegory is when we convey symbolic meaning where none is intended. Allegory is when we ignore the history of a text and we interpret it through imagery, um, to find its significance, okay? Typology says this is intended and planned and intentional. So how do we know when something is typological? Well, sometimes the New Testament helps us out. But also what often happens is we find a transcendence in the Old Testament itself. So you look at Genesis chapter 22 when God calls Abraham to offer Isaac. And significantly, he names the place on the mount of the Lord it shall, future tense, be provided. And so there's a correlation there, right? He's supposed to offer his son, but a ram is provided in its place. But when he looks at what just happened, he said, this isn't just about me and my son. This is about the future. And it goes on in chapter 22 to say, so even to this day it's referred to, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. There was an expectation built into it. Now do we see that here? Yes, we see that the tabernacle is representative, don't we? That in some way it's according to the pattern. That it has some sort of visible significance that is a reflection of something else, right? My only problem with the interpretation that takes each and every detail as significant is that it ends up being tremendously subjective. And so you're not going to find consistent opinions on what those things are. Okay. And so, so, could there be significance in every detail? Are we talking about an infinite God? Of course. Can we confidently state what that significance is, this side of heaven? I'm not so convinced. However, does that mean that there's no value to the importance of the plan and the pattern in the tabernacle? There definitely is. And I want to draw out some of those things that I think are built on a little bit broader of a foundation, than just a one-to-one comparison, okay? A lot of things in the Old Testament may remind us of Jesus, but which ones are actually about him, okay? To do this best, what we want to do is travel uh, longitudinally across scripture. Remember learning about lines of latitude and lines of longitude? We want to look for things thematically that run all the way from Genesis to Revelation, And we have a good reason to do so here. Not only have we seen it kind of pointing backwards to creation in the Garden of Eden, but later authors build upon this. So there's not just a tabernacle, then there's a temple. And then Ezekiel picks up the temple and he envisions a much greater temple, an eschatological temple. And then Jesus picks up the imagery and Paul picks up the imagery. when It's all tied up in the book of Revelation. It picks up the imagery. But more importantly not just symbolically do we see things that are kind of similar, different in different periods, but growing into an idea. We also see a primary theme in what God is doing with humanity. Okay, What's the purpose of the tabernacle? That God may dwell with his people. Okay, When you go back to creation, what's the purpose of the garden? What's the purpose of mankind? God creates them to be with them. Right? There's more than that. There's purpose. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You're the image of God. You're my reflection on earth. But in the garden of Eden, right? they walked in, in the garden with God in the coolness of the day. In fact, what is the question that God asks after they sin? Adam, where are you? Clearly, that's an opportunity for confession. But notice the underlying locative nature of it. Where are you? In other words, you should be with me and you're not. Right, And so in the garden, there's a perfect dwelling place for man and God, a place where God and man can coexist, but with the fall comes a problem. The garden is barred. There's no way back. They're cut off from the tree of life and from the presence of God. And so God in Israel is creating a new creation in the tabernacle. He's giving them access But now they have to navigate this serious problem, the problem of sin, right? And so it's access, but it's controlled access. It's limited access. There's division involved. And later this tabernacle grows into the temple, the temple that David envisions and Solomon builds, which as a side note is about twice the size of the tabernacle. And uh, a lot of the pieces get bigger. A lot of the pieces get multiplied. We're ramping up Okay, And then, like I said, Ezekiel takes this image of the temple, this place where man comes to dwell with his people, and he broadens out the boundaries. He blows out the wa- uh, walls, and he remodels big time. Okay. You start to measure his temple, and it gets a little ridiculous. Okay. But he's just painting this vision of what God's going to do. And then, as I mentioned, Jesus shows up on the scene, Jesus' best friend John says, you want to understand the tabernacle? When Jesus became a man, that was God dwelling with us, right? As the tabernacle was, so God became a man to walk among us, to be with us. And it doesn't stop there. Destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up again. And then, suddenly there's this transition. And one of the things that made Christians unique in the first century world was they were templeless." right? Christians would gather to worship, but the church wasn't even a building. The church was the gathering itself. There was no temple. There was no representation of their God. In fact, Paul says both of us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, individually, you are the temple of God because the Holy Spirit dwells in you, and us collectively in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we are the temple of God. In fact, we need to turn there because I want you to hear the emphasis. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Second Corinthians chapter six, he says in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Okay. In other words, he says, why are we the temple? Because this is the beginning of God dwelling with us, and that starts with God dwelling in us. Let me put it in big picture. The earth was designed to be a temple. Where man and God would dwell together. The holy place, the center of it, right, was the Garden of Eden. It had a tree of life, just like the holy place and the tabernacle and the temple does. But with sin, all of that's broken down, and what God does with Israel is he takes back ground for that tabernacle, and then it grows into a temple. And then despite the ups and downs of Israel's faithfulness and unfaithfulness, God becomes a man. And not only does God become a man, but then he sends his spirit to dwell in Christians. And it doesn't end there. When you turn all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, we find the same elements again. The Bible begins in one sense just where it ends. There's a tree of life in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. There's many trees of life uh, lining the river in the New Jerusalem. In fact, do you know what it is that makes the uh, Bible's view of heaven a uniquely Christian view of heaven? You know what sets it apart from other views of heaven, other paradise visions? The emphasis in heaven, according to the Bible, is that it's the place where God dwells with his people. Read it. Read Revelation 20 and 21 over and over again, and there's no temple in their midst because Jesus and the Father will be their temple, and he will dwell with them, and they will be their people. Not only that, but have you ever read in Revelation when it talks about this new Jerusalem coming out of heaven and it describes it? This is mind-blowing to me. It doesn't just give us, like a city planner would, the width of this new city and the length of this new city. It gives the height, and they're all equal. Okay? We can't even picture that. I don't think he was particularly right, but just to illustrate, Chuck Smith envisioned the New Jerusalem as a satellite that rotated around the earth like a little planet, okay? Because the description of it is weird. It's miles long and wide and high, but here's the important thing. In the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, it's 15 by 15 by 15. It's a cube. In the temple, when it built its Holy of Holies, it's a cube, In Ezekiel's, it's a cube. The new Jerusalem is a cube. What's the difference? We dwell in the new Jerusalem. Okay, there's a restoration of the relationship between man and God. And so the way that the tabernacle is laid out is pointing to that reality that God wants to dwell with us, but it also points to the difficulty of that, that the Bible calls sin. Sin that there's this huge separation because God is good and perfect and holy and just and therefore diametrically opposed to the reality of sin, to the destruction we do to ourselves, to other people, to God's creation. And so he starts the tabernacle just to get the ball rolling, but he's really just pointing. It's just the beginning of a trajectory moving towards the place where he can remove the issue of sin. In the Gospel of John, it tells us when Jesus is hanging on the cross that simultaneously as he's dying, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. The veil between the holy place and the Holy of Holies. What is that? It's access. In fact, the author of Hebrews says something totally insane. How did you get in the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament? Very carefully right? Following the rules. We'll find out next week that the, that the Levites had to wear bells, okay? And it makes a big deal out of the bells. And it may be that the bells are basically so that there's no silence in the Holy of Holies, so that there's constant sound. He comes in with incense, and it tells us that the, that the incense is to hide the ark so that he doesn't die, okay? And so basically, he's only exposed to the ark with, you know, um, like Tommy in The Who, Completely blinded from the ark, not being able to hear anything but bells. Um, There was an old tradition, though, that maybe the bells were there so you'd know if the Levite screwed up and you could drag him back out, okay, because he died. If the bells aren't working, you go, "Oh, oh, that's not good, okay? Now, here's why I bring this up, because the author of Hebrews says that we as Christians are anchored beyond the veil. It says that our starting place in the Christian life is the holy of holies, That anything we do outside of life, we still have this thread of safety that goes back to the presence of God. Okay? So, is the tabernacle and its symbolism significant? Absolutely. Because it points to the primary reason God has created mankind just to be with Him for relationship, because God is love and that love overflows into His creation. It points to the greatest problem that that relationship has been broken because of sin it points to the solution as God became a temple himself in Jesus Christ dealt with the sin issue became not just the temple but the priest and the sacrifice to take care of this and then he comes to dwell in us because he's taking back ground in the human race and eventually the whole world will be a temple and we shall be his people we will dwell with him and he will dwell with us let's pray Father, I know it's easy for us to get lost in the details, to to drown in what seems like irrelevance. But if anything, Lord, these details point to the significance of the tabernacle. And that significance is not just a significance for the Jews. It's a significance for God's created intention to have a relationship with us, for God's promised plan of salvation to send his son as a sacrifice, a high priest, and even a temple. And his invitation of salvation, come and dwell with me. I pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in the reality of the tabernacle, and we would also rejoice that the barriers have been broken down, that we don't have to tiptoe around you anymore but as Paul says we can boldly enter into the throne room of grace I pray God that you would help us to recognize that we don't have to go anywhere to worship you, to meet with you, to be with you because you came to us the gospel of John says this for this is eternal life that you would know the father and the son whom he has sent and we have that relationship now we praise you for, you for it and we thank you for it in the name of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, our sufficient sacrifice, the one who came and tabernacled among us so that we might be the temple of God. Amen.